I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Michael Pina from The Ringer in just a little bit. Of course, we'll get into the Celtics with Pina. I'm worried about this team right now. This is not a great stretch for the Celtics as they've really struggled post-All-Star break. So hopefully Pina can walk me off the ledge here and make me feel a little bit better about this Celtics team because it's been ugly lately. And then we're going to chat with my buddy Rob Bradford, who covers the Red Sox for EI. He's down there in Fort Myers, so we'll get the latest with the team and what he's seeing down there. But also, Rob co-authored a book with Joe Kelly, so we'll get into his new book as well. All right, but I want to start with the big news today is Jacoby Myers is no longer a member of the Patriots. He signed a three-year, $33 million deal with the Las Vegas Raiders and our old friend Josh McDaniels, Dave Ziegler down there as well. $21 million of that is guaranteed. Oh, and by the way, Jimmy Garoppolo is now their quarterback. So the annual average value, that $11 million, that ranks 29th behind Curtis Samuel, Tim Patrick, Corey Davis, and Michael Gallup. Not exactly a big-time deal for Jacoby Myers, and one the Patriots certainly could have paid him. And you look at the projections, he was projected to get between 12 and $14 million, and he gets $11 million. So my whole thing is, that's a really good contract for Jacoby Myers, especially what he brings to the table. If I was the Patriots, I would have just done this deal. He's your best receiver right now. He's your best playmaker right now in terms of receivers and tight ends, and it's not even remotely close. Now, I hope that there was a contingency plan, and I would say this, there needs to be a contingency plan right now where they need to trade for a number one receiver, whether it's DeAndre Hopkins, Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, T. Higgins, Mike Evans, one of those guys needs to be in a Patriots uniform this year, or this move looks even worse. And even if that is the case, that you trade for one of those guys, can't you have a number two receiver as well? Because what he... (laughs) got was a number two contract in terms of of a receiver. He didn't get paid like a number one. He got paid like a number two. And the thing about the NFL nowadays, we're seeing you need weapons, plural. 
the Eagles have A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith, right? And don't give me the Chiefs, right? Because they have the best quarterback in the game right now in Pat Mahomes and the best tight end in the game, right? Yes, they won the Super Bowl after they traded away Tyree Kill. But guess what? When Pat Mahomes was still young in this league and he won his first Super Bowl, he had Travis Kelsey and he had Tyreek Hill. Okay, so you had those two weapons for Pat Mahomes. So now you look at this Patriots team right now. I don't understand how Jacoby Myers doesn't fit, right? I would have brought him back without hesitation. Remember last year, 804 yards at his 14 games. That was 265 yards more than any other Patriots player. He was 24th in terms of his rank in PFF in terms of against man coverage. 24th among all receivers in the NFL. He had a 119.6 passer rating when targeted. That was 17th among receivers. That was up from 83.7 last season, which was 130th among receivers. So a 35.9 point increase. Receiving yards were up by seven yards. The catch percentage went up by four percentage points. Yards per target went from 6.9 up to 8.4. All his numbers got better in 2022. And this is coming from a person, I believe that Jacoby Myers is a number two. I've told you that. But he got number two money. That's the damn point. And if you look at it, Curtis Samuel, 11.5 million, as we mentioned, Gallup, 11.5, Davis, 12.5. That's number two money. That's the neighborhood that Jacoby Myers was in. Why couldn't you bring him back as a member of the Patriots? And I mention all these numbers in terms of the improvement because he got better last season with bad coaching. The Patriots organization admitted by moving on from Patricia and upgrading the offensive coordinator position with Bill O'Brien, they admitted that the coaching was poor last year. And Jacoby Myers, despite all that, the bad play calling, et cetera, he got better. So you bring this guy in, you develop him, and now his best years are going to be in Las Vegas. Like, this just makes little sense to me, right? He's going to be there for his 27, 28, and 29-year-old seasons. Not even 30, okay? Remember this whole idea. Hey, get rid of a guy a year too early rather than a year too late. Well, they got rid of Jacoby Myers like six years too early. This to me is just so damn perplexing. He developed here. You should get credit for developing the player and now you let him go. And I don't understand this whole idea. Why can't you have multiple weapons? Even if you have, like I acknowledge, you trade for a number one receiver. Why can't you have multiple guys? The Raiders are now paying Adams 28 mil. They're paying Renfro 16.1 and they're paying Jacoby $11 million. Like this is what you do. Jimmy Garoppolo, like Carr before him, is a limited quarterback. They need help around them. So they have a ton of weapons. Mac Jones is a limited quarterback. You need a ton of weapons. And right now the Patriots don't have that. And they just lost their best guy. Now, Jacoby Myers chatted with Josina Anderson. And this is what he had to say. It's hard to turn down Las Vegas. When you look at their offense, when you look at their coaches, they wanted me. I wanted them. Unfortunately, it didn't work out with the Patriots. I put a lot of effort and time there. I appreciate them. But God works in mysterious ways. I'm blessed. The thing that sticks out to me there is they wanted me, I wanted them. The Patriots clearly did not make Jacoby Myers a big enough priority to say, hey, he wants to be here, right? You want him to be here. You didn't make that abundantly clear to Jacoby Myers, and now you lost him to the Las Vegas Raiders. And it's just an unfortunate situation all the way around here. And I do, I was chatting with Jamie McClellan, of course, the producer of Off the Pike before we started here. It's hard to turn down Las Vegas, is it really? I mean, is it that hard to turn down Las Vegas? Now, first of all, I'm not even talking about the city. I'm talking about the organization. It's not exactly like they've been a well-run organization over the past couple of years, and they look like a much better option than the New England Patriots. That's where the Patriots right now are at sort of in terms of the hierarchy 
around the NFL. The Patriots are never going to get guys that come here on a lower price. The Patriots right now are just like any other team in the NFL. Guys used to come here to chase rings and they'd play on cheaper deals to play with Tom Brady. That's no longer the case whatsoever. And it's just unfortunate because he was one of the real lone bright spots on this team and they let him go. This is the type of guy you should want to pay as an organization. A guy that works his ass off to become a really good receiver in the NFL, to become a really good player in the NFL. To, he's a real professional guy. This is the guy that you should reward. And instead, the Patriots paid guys like Nelson Aguilar in the past, who's no longer with the team, and hopefully not. The Devontae Parkers of the world that you brought over in a trade, but you won't pay the best guy that you've had over the past two seasons. It makes no sense to me. And you tell me, how does this help the quarterback? And this is where I get to the whole idea, like the Dolphins, they go after Tyreek Hill to go along with Jalen Waddell because they want to help their young quarterback in Tua. You look at the Eagles, the reason they made that trade last year for A.J. Brown, they want to help their young quarterback because quarterbacks that aren't named like Patrick Mahomes or even a guy like Tom Brady, the best quarterback of all team, those guys lead, need less help than a guy like Mac Jones, right? Mac Jones needs elite talent around him to thrive. He needs it, and unfortunately, he's not going to get it here with the Patriots. Jimmy Garoppolo, he was successful with Kittle, Debo, Ayuk, and they even brought over Christian McCaffrey. Of course, Jimmy gets uh, ends up getting hurt, but they brought that guy to help Jimmy Garoppolo. And you look at Las Vegas, it's Adams, it's Renfro, it's Myers. He's going to have success there because he has good players around him. And what world are the Patriots living in right now where they think they can let Jacoby Myers go? You're not good enough to let Jacoby Myers go. This is where your money needs to be invested. Receiver, receiver, and more receivers. Okay, Brady isn't the quarterback anymore. You need better weapons. And even with Brady, you always had Gronk or Randy Moss, right? When it really started to become Brady's team, really, in 2006, 2007. After 06, they said, hey, let's get him a number one guy. He got Randy Moss. Then he got Rob Gronkowski. And with Mac Jones, the guy that was the closest to being a number one, even though I say he's a number two, he's now out of the organization. I just wonder what the plan is, right? Because the Patriots are now the fourth most talented team in the division. Are you rebuilding? Well, Myers would have fit into that timeline. Are you competing now? Well, Myers fits into that timeline too. He's just entering his prime. If you're rebuilding, you want this guy that's entering his prime. I just don't quite frankly understand it. He's not an old player. He's a young player. And okay, so that news sucked for the Patriots. The other bit of business that we got, Jonu Smith traded for a seventh rounder to Atlanta. Year one for Johnny with the Patriots, 28 receptions, 16.9 million in cash. 27 receptions in year two, 9.8 million dollars in cash. Not a great investment, right? Receiving yards, 2022, 245, 39th among tight ends. Two, uh, 2021, 294, 31st among tight ends. 12.5 million per year was the contract tied for eighth amongst tight ends. 13.2 million in guaranteed, fifth among tight ends. So fifth and guaranteed got you the guy that was 39th among tight ends and receiving yards last year. That's just where you're at with Jonu Smith. And look, I thought, okay, Tennessee, you look at his numbers in 19, 7.4 yak per reception, which was seventh of the NFL. At that particular point in time, you feel like, oh, maybe the Patriots look at this guy, which I thought this is the belief. Hey, we get him here with more use and with a bigger role, he can thrive, right? And we've seen the Patriots do this with different guys over time. It just fell flat on its face. It didn't work. I understand taking a chance on a guy like this, but you completely whiffed. I mean, this is one of the worst free agency deals that Bill Belichick has ever given out. You look at it too. They gave up on this project so quickly, right? First four games of 2021, he was targeted 21 times. So the first four games two years ago, they really tried to make him a featured part of the offense. 
And then the rest of the season, he had 24 targets, okay? So they gave up on it after his first four games of the season. They were like, no, this guy doesn't have it. And really, last year, he was never really used as a featured player. And at this particular point in time, the thing was a sunk cost. It's going to save you a little bit over $4 million as it pertains to your salary cap space. But man, this is just a complete dud of a free agent signing for the Patriots. And they gave this guy $50 million. They won't even get Jacoby Myers, 33. I mean, you got to be kidding, kidding me. They gave Nelson Aguilar 22. You won't give Jacoby Myers $33 million. I mean, come on, man. This is just, I, I don't understand what they're doing right now. I really don't understand the direction of the team. Everything needs to be, let's find out if Mac Jones is good enough. And right now, yeah, you made the move of getting Bill O'Brien, but you let Mac Jones' most trusted receiver go away. Let's see what they do the rest of free agency. But in terms of how they started, it's been going really, really poorly for the Patriots. All right, coming up next, Michael Pina from The Ringer is going to join us after the Celtics lost to the Houston Rockets on Monday night. Should we be worried about this team? We'll ask Pina next. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, you read his stuff on The Ringer. You hear him on The Ringer NBA show. You hear him on Bill's podcast as well. It is Michael Pina. Pina, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm fantastic, Brian. How you doing, man? Well, I'm trying to recover after the Celtics lose to the Rockets on Monday night. That's something that I didn't expect to see. I mean, I tweeted out before the game, the Celtics are number one in the NBA against bottom 10 defenses, and the Rockets are last in the NBA against top 10 offenses. So I thought the Celtics would easily win this game. Obviously, it didn't happen that way. And then we get Perk on the broadcast last night, Pino with Scal, and he's calling for Peyton Pritchard to come into the game. Peyton Pritchard was injured. Scal had to tell him, like, Peyton Pritchard's injured, so... Based on the way the Celtics are playing right now, I'm not doing too well. I'm not going to lie to you. Peyton Pritchard would have been great last night, though. You know, come in, get some offensive rebounds, hit some timely threes. Could have used him, honestly. I think they could have. I mean, he does. The one thing I'll give him is, like, I know he's had some comments that weren't great publicly about the fact that he wanted to be traded. But the one thing I will say, every time he's on the floor, the guy does play hard. He does give you maximum effort. So maybe that was the secret last night. In order to beat the Rockets, you need Peyton Pritchard. All right, so the Celtics right now, (laughs) he's the key. They're in the middle of this rough stretch after that loss. They're 500 since the break. But before we get into some of the issues that the team is having right now, they've now lost Damon Stoudemire. Mighty Mouse is going to Georgia Tech, so good for him. He gets a head coaching gig there. And it's kind of crazy to me, right? Like you had the Eme off the court situation and Will Hardy goes to Utah before that came to light. And now you lose one of the top assistants during the season. And if you watch these games a lot, you see that the two guys that are talking to Missoula are Ben Sullivan and Damon Stoudemire. Now, I'm not saying this is the reason the Celtics aren't going to win a championship or anything along those lines. Like they can still reach all their goals, but it certainly doesn't help. Right. We're in the middle of the season. And this has clearly been the roughest stretch, as I alluded to, that the Celtics have had this season. It's not good, especially this is a former NBA player, a former all-star I'm sure guys are going to him for advice during the year as well. Like, I mean, it's just a tough situation losing him at this point. Yeah, it's not what you want. I mean, 
I was reading uh, The Athletic's Jay King wrote a story about Damon Stoudemire taking the Georgia Tech job, and he had this note in there about how everyone on Joe Mazzulla's staff is actually younger than Udonis Haslam. And I was like, oh, my, that's like, uh, <laughs> that's very interesting. Um, so it's like, you know, if they're the t- in a 2-7 up against Eric Spolstra, uh, I think Joe Mazzulla is like a good coach, but... You know, like you're going up against someone who's won NBA championships, who's just a brilliant tactician, um, making adjustments from game to game, quarter to quarter, possession to possession, and that's what you need in the playoffs. I think that, uh, like you said, I, I don't think this is something that should be looked at as a reason why the Celtics can't win the championship or anything like that. That's... Uh, you know, coaching can only do so much, honestly, at the end of the day. And they're very, very talented and they have a lot of experience, postseason experience up and down their roster. But it's, yeah, it's just like not what you want. You don't want to lose someone like Damon Stoudemire in the middle of a season and this late in the season, nonetheless. Yeah. All right. So let's get to some of the issues with this team at this particular moment in time. And I am starting to get a little bit worried, Pina, about Joe Mazzula with some of the stuff that he's been doing. So, <laughs> All right, let's the two biggest things to me right now are Smart and Grant. So let's start with Smart. So since he came back from the injury, he hasn't really looked right. And this is after he really had the rough start to the season. Then he started to distribute well. It was probably his best passing season until he came back from the injury. But he's had some really bad fourth quarters as of late. Missoula continues to close with him. And I imagine that's because they want to get him sort of back on track here. But Monday with the score 106 he has a careless turnover Then when he's just dribbling into the lane. He had a brick off an offensive rebound, which I felt it was rushed. I know you want to shoot threes off an offensive rebound, but we saw the same thing happen late in the Cleveland game. And these past couple of fourth quarters, there's been some issues with Smart against Atlanta. He was not particularly great in the fourth quarter of that game either, where he had a really bad charge late and he actually bricked a shot off the shot clock, which is obviously difficult to do. And on a three-on-one possession in that game where Tatum gives him a bounce, pack, bounce pass rather for an easy layup, he just loses the ball. So he's had some tough moments here. And one of the things I look at is if you compare the numbers with Derek White and Marcus Smart since Smart returned from the injury, White's almost at 50% from the field, 49.1. Smart's at 37.9. The assist-to-turnover ratio, White's at 3.75. Smart is at 1.45 which smart is that's really bad for most point guards but for smart it's really bad and i know sometimes like the on off stuff can be misleading but it kind of matches what we're seeing on the court like last 11 games white on celtics plus 56 best on the team smart on celtics minus 35 worst on the team the off court minus 29 with white off furthest like in the negative territory plus 62 with smart furthest in the positive territory so Like, I'm more upset that White in that game Monday because last week, actually, you had a game against the Knicks where Joe Mazzulla came out and said, hey, I should have played him more late, right? And then we saw he was closing games. And then last night, I know Brogdon was out there, but Smart was also out there. So I'm just wondering, like, to me so far this season, White has been the superior player. And I just, especially in that game last night, after all the information we've had recently with some of the issues Smart's had, I just don't get why Derek White, who I would argue has been the Celtics' third best player all season long, why he's not on the floor to end that game. Yeah. So when it comes to Marcus Smart, like with me, like I look like the shooting in certain in some of these games has been 
particularly since the All-Star break has been pretty worrisome. There's three for 11 from behind the three-point line in the Knicks loss. I think he went three for 11 against the Cavs as well. Um, I, I I hear all of the on-offs um, that you're throwing out. All the numbers are true. The assisted turnover is bad. Um, he had one turnover late in last night's game driving down. I think you probably just recited it where he just loses the ball. A couple seconds after he forced a turnover, um, trapping Jalen Green on the sideline, which is just like, that's, I guess what I'm trying to say is like with Marcus Smart, you just generally take the the screw ups and the quick shots with all of the brilliant things that he does that just are really hard to quantify. I've been saying this like throughout his entire career, like even in the game last night, they're down to, I want to say, Malcolm Brogdon's at the free throw line. Smart draws a foul going for a rebound with Malcolm Brogdon shooting free throws on Jay Sean Tate that sends yeah. him to the free throw line. And it's like, <laughs> no one in the NBA makes a play like that. Like, that was just like, like I don't even know how to describe or illustrate what that was. Like, he, like, drawing a foul, getting the free throw line, knowing his team's in the bonus in a spot like that, that's just all energy, all hustle, all brains. Um, forced a turnover um, a couple plays later on I forget who was driving on the Rockets into the paint tried to do a dump off pass he deflected it away Celtics took it the other direction Um, like you know in the fourth quarter this season they're plus 10.4 points per 100 possessions with Marcus Smart on the court which is second highest on the team I think generally speaking you need Marcus Smart like I love Derek White I think he's Amazing. I thought he was amazing. Like in San Antonio, I thought that the trade was great. Um, would have given up even more for him. I think the world of him, I think the world of his fit with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Um, I think to win a title, like you need Marcus Smart playing big minutes. You need him playing crunch time minutes. The things that he does for you defensively in your switch everything scheme, like when you're up against the Philadelphia 76ers in game five of the conference semifinals or up against the Bucks if you advance in the conference finals. Like you're just gonna need him on those like ISO switches and like huge spots to get stops. Like and he does that. He does that like consistently. He had one play, I know the Hawks the end of the Hawks game wasn't terrific, but like he had one sequence, like they're uh I think Trey cuts it to five with about three and a half left. He drives, Marcus Smart drives, kicks to Horford in the corner, three. Next play, uh, Trey penetrates off a pick and roll. Smart helps off Sadiq Bay, contests the floater. Jason Tatum takes it, hits the back rim. Jason Tatum takes it the other way for a layup. Timeout Hawks. The lead's back up to 10. Like, he just does stuff like that. And so I think he's, like, invaluable. And you kind of just have to live with the bad and... I don't foresee Joe Missoula benching Marcus Smart, like unless the first three quarters of multiple playoff games are like a total catastrophe. I just think he's like really, really important and valuable to how they play and just like their fundamental identity as a basketball team. Yeah, I hear that. And I've been saying like, I want Marcus Smart to get back to the player that he had been prior to the injury. So I totally understand why Joe Mazzulla continues to go to him with minutes. I just feel like I remember last year during the postseason when Ime, there was one game where he didn't have Smart in the closing lineup. And I just feel like some of these games lately, 
it may behoove Joe Mazzulla to go with, say, the Brogdon and White combination, because these guys are both really good players, too. Like Brogdon was Brogdon is, you know, up for the sixth man of the year. He's right now the best three point shooter from a percentage standpoint in the entire NBA. So I just wonder if there will be times where Missoula down the stretch of the season here will say, hey, you know what? Maybe the best lineup tonight is White, Brogdon, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum and Al Horford like. I know that I was critical of Marcus, but to me, it's not so much about me being critical about Marcus as it is like these other two guys are playing at a really high level. And sometimes when Marcus isn't playing at that same level, having the spacing that Brogdon provides you and White, who has been an outstanding defender as well, I just feel like we haven't seen Joe Mazzula really show, for lack of a better term, the ability to take Smart out of the closing lineup at times and go with those other two guards who are definitely deserving of those minutes. That would be my one concern with Missoula. Like, would he actually have, again, for lack of a better term, the balls to do that? Yeah, I think that, I think like their closing lineup in general is a kind of a toss up right now and will be matchup dependent in the postseason. Like, I don't really care that much about the regular season with this team. I should like say that at the top. Like, I. They want to win the championship. They have legitimate aspirations and ability to do so. So I don't get too bogged down in what I'm seeing in the regular season, if that makes too much, not enough sense or whatever. But so, like, yeah, so your point is like, you're not as concerned about what Missoula is doing with the lineups late in these games, because you're not saying that's going to be what he does in the postseason, so to speak. No, I th- like, for example, like the Grant Williams minutes right now are are, are curious to me. But at the end of the day, I don't think he's going to average eight minutes a game in a playoff series when you need to stop Giannis or you need bodies to throw at Joel Embiid or you're going up against the Miami Heat in round one and Bam Adebayo is going out of control. Like he's just really valuable in the playoffs, and I think Joe Mazzulla understands that. So like right now, I'm just kind. Of, I, I'm like I said, like I think they're curious. Like I don't necessarily understand doing what he's doing. Like against the Rockets, like first big off the bench is Blake Griffin. Okay. Like why? Like I don't really get that. And then you bring like Grant Williams doesn't check up into the game until nine minutes into the second quarter. Like I just, stuff like that is a little interesting to me and could mess with someone like Grant Williams confidence as he goes for his next contract. Like that, all that is kind of worth monitoring. But like at the end of the day, you have Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and then, like, based on how the first three quarters go, the first 44 minutes go of a game, like, I don't think anyone is guaranteed to be on the court. Like, you have a lot of great options. And when Rob Williams is healthy, like, is he going to be one of those guys? Are you going to play Horford and Rob? Are you going to go with three guards? Like, Smart, White, and Brogdon haven't really played a lot this season, but I could see those three on the court in big minutes in a fourth quarter of a, of a huge game. Absolutely. Like, why can't they play together? So I think a lot of it is matchup dependent. I think they have a lot of options. And like, generally speaking, despite how poorly they've played and some of like just the nature of their losses, blowing leads, etc. I don't think the sky is falling on this team right now. Yeah, and it, it's a fair point in terms of the mixing and matching down the stretcher. But you mentioned Grant. I think that one is just, it's so bizarre to me. <laughs> I'm with you, like Blake Griffin. And look, he's been good for this team when they've asked him. Like, remember at the beginning of the year, he was like a spot starter in Major League Baseball where it's like, hey, every once in a while, Al Horford's going to get the back-to-back off, which he always gets the back-to-back off. That means Blake's going to be starting. 
And that was kind of his role. But now, like, he's getting a lot more playing time. And we know that Grant's been dealing with that elbow issue that, ironically, he opened up about it after he missed the two free throws against Cleveland. That's when he talked about it when he was telling Donovan Mitchell that he was going to hit them both, which I thought was kind of funny. But it is weird, right? Because so in that game against Houston, he plays eight minutes. He doesn't come back in the second half. He barely plays against Indiana, and that's when we kind of got the idea like, oh, is something going on with Grant here? And then he gets the DNP against Cleveland. He gets the DNP against Atlanta as well. I actually thought last night he had a nice block as a help defender. I know that he had a turnover after that, but I thought at times this year Grant's sort of been late, like in his help assignments, and that was a nice sign where he had that block on Jalen Green. The shooting's been down since he's been dealing with this injury. I just wonder, like, from my perspective, and you mentioned a little bit with Grant, is they're going to need him if they're going to win a championship, right? Because you have two guys on your team that can legitimately match up with Giannis. It's Grant and, of course, it's Al Horford. And I also think there'll be some other matchups in the Eastern Conference playoffs where you're going to need Grant. My only concern would be, and I know that Grant is like everybody's favorite teammate and all that, does he start to lose confidence at any point that he keeps like he doesn't really know when he's going to maybe Missoula is telling him prior to these games, but it's like, OK, you're not going to play. OK, then I need you to play. 30 minutes. And when we get to the playoffs, you're going to have like the toughest assignments. I feel like they got to get Grant going before they get into the postseason. Because, Pina, if you told me this like, what, eight weeks ago, hey, Grant's going to get a bunch of DNPs, I would have told you you were crazy. Like, this this guy's going to get a big contract in the offseason. He plays great defense. He can hit threes. I'm just, I'm amazed that we're at this point with Grant Williams. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, he was one of their most valuable players in last year's finals run and then just kind of got played off the floor in a bad matchup against the Golden State Warriors, which a lot of really good players get played off the floor against the Golden State Warriors. Um, but yeah, right now it's just, you know, he plays like 45 minutes against the Knicks in their most recent loss against them. And then it's just kind of been, you know in and out of the rotation since and I don't know he's really important like he just there was one play in last night's game you mentioned it like the turnover where he kind of it's like kind of like a dribble handoff keeper and he just had like no idea what he was doing like almost falling over as soon as he turned the corner it was like usually like I don't know if someone on the weak side screwed up. They love to run that Grant Hammer play. I haven't really done that that much this season, but that was like a bread and butter action for them last season. And I don't know if someone was supposed to be in the weak side corner, but Grant just kind of threw the ball to a member of the Houston Rockets. Um, Like, I don't know. Like, I foresee him playing and having an important role in the playoffs, matchup dependent. But this year's roster is also not last year's roster and um they have a lot of different options particularly in the backcourt that they didn't have last year a lot more depth so who knows honestly uh but i do think that he's he's like really important and i i don't know this for sure but i would honestly like i don't think that joe mazula is necessarily telling grant before games hey you're not gonna play i think that like i remember talking to uh People in the Clippers uh, a couple of years ago when they were in the playoffs and Ty Lue was just switching the starting five constantly and guys were had no idea what their minutes were going to be from night to night. And Ty Lue didn't communicate. I asked them, like, does Ty Lue communicate this stuff to you? And they're like, not really. No, just like be a pro, be ready. <laughs> 
So that's kind of what it is. And I think Grant yeah. said that after his first DNP. He's like, I got to be a professional. I got to bring energy. He does bring energy on the bench. You see him standing when guys hit threes and stuff. Like, he is a great teammate. But, like, they wouldn't have gone. They wouldn't. I wouldn't have come close, in my opinion, to getting where they got last year without him. He was invaluable. And, yeah, it's just it, I keep saying the word curious. It's curious to me that he doesn't play um, as many minutes as he probably should be right now. Yeah, I mean, he had seven threes in the clincher right against Milwaukee. So they, he was incredible in that series for the Seas. I feel bad, too, because I, like, I was preparing to take Pina during that game last night because I felt like the Celtics are going to come back and win. Like That's one of the best games I've ever seen Jalen Brown play. Like Defensively, he's getting help blocks. He's hitting some crazy shots in this game, like sidestep threes. He had a mid-ranger like, going to his left, fading away. He had a smaller defender on him. He posts him up and then fade away. He gets an and one. He had that incredible drive where the help came and he just like threw up a right-handed scoop shot around the defender. I thought he was just so good last night. And I just feel bad. Like I wanted Jalen Brown to be the storyline after that game. And unfortunately it's not. But I mean, just on Jalen, how how well did you think he played in that game? Do you agree with me that that's one of the best games you've seen him play? Just, I mean, he had everything going. Yeah, I mean, he's played a lot of great games, but that was, and look, I also want to say like not to take anything away from Jalen, but a lot of players have had a lot of like great games this year <laughs> against the Houston Rockets. So <laughs> Good point. <laughs> that should be that should be mentioned. Um, but no, he was he was terrific. The stat line was amazing. Forty three points on twenty five shots. Um, how he was doing it was great. He had that one like the coast to coast bull rush late in the game where it was kind of like no no no, and then he put on the turbo boosters and just blew by everybody and finished at the rim. Um, yeah, he was he was terrific. I think like in general, he's been playing some pretty good basketball of late. I mean, he's having an all NBA caliber season. He could be an all NBA player. I don't know. It'll be really close because there's a lot of talent in the league this season. But generally, like he's just kind of been Jalen, like steady at what he's really great at. Um, leave some passes on the table that I hope he sees when he watches the film just working to get better at that. But like generally speaking is like an awesome scorer, an awesome player at his role. Awesome from the mid range, um, hitting really tough threes. The shot selection is, you know, I think that the team's assist rate when he's on the court versus when he's off is something to monitor and don't really move the ball as much when he's on the floor. And that's, it does. It's not like a problem or the reason that their offense has struggled of late, but it is something again to monitor. And you would like to see a little bit more drive and kick sometimes. But no, he's been he's been great. And last night against the Rockets, he was amazing. Yeah, that assist number is interesting because I think they're down like three per one hundred possessions with him on the court. And the one thing I did notice, and they trotted this lineup back out in the fourth. I talked about this on Sunday. Is now they're using Hauser and Brogdon with Jalen a lot more in the non-Tatum minutes. And I do feel like that sort of makes his reads easier because, hey, if that guy helps, then you throw it to one of those guys who's going to knock down a three because they're both elite shooters. So I do think that sort of makes the reads easier for Jalen. All right, so I did want to get to just the Celtics offense in general because they have this great start where the first 26 games, they're 21-5. and five. They're steamrolling teams. And then they get the Warriors. They lose that game. Since that point, it's 43 games, 26-17. and 17. So the first 26 games, number one rating, 119.9. Since then, 15th, 114.6. 
And you just look at some of the numbers across the board. The half-court offense, according to Cleaning the Glass, in the last 43 is 12th prior to that. They were number one in the NBA at 108.4. And, like, the numbers are just down from a three-point percentage, right? So they were 36.3%, so slightly above average in their last 43. First 26 are at 40, which is obviously the best in the league. The attempts are similar, 42.6 to 41.5. And the free throw attempts are basically the same, 21.8, which is 29th, and now they're 25th to 21, or prior to that, they were 21.7, which was 25th. Shots at the restricted area, pretty similar, 23rd in attempts at 24, 24.3 in their first 26, that's 23rd. So the reason I bring up those numbers is if you look at the three-point percentage, it's dipped dramatically where they're slightly above average, but they're not getting to the free throw line and they're not getting to the restricted area or at least getting attempts in the restricted areas. So those numbers are pretty much the same throughout the season. The only difference is the three-point shooting has not been the same. So my question to you is, can they continue to live this way? And also, like, is it too late to kind of change what you do? Like, I'd love to see them get into the paint a little bit more, mainly get to the free throw line a little bit more, because really the only guy that gets to the line consistently on this team is Jason Tatum. But Is there anything to you wrong with the offense in terms of the shot profile, if you will? Because it does feel like it's a lot of feast and famine with the threes. Yeah, I mean, that's just how it is. Like, I think they have a lot of really good three-point shooters. Their spacing is pretty good every night. Um, Their shot quality, even since the the uh the all-star break is one of the best shot qualities in the league according to second spectrum like they take good shots they get players in spots to make shots that they can um i just see like beyond what the numbers are like when i watch them from earlier in the season to now like their pace even in the half court is just not where it should be in terms of like the crisp, like, catch-and-go kick that creates those shots. And, like, getting two or three or four of those in the same 24-second possession is something that they used to do. Like, they were, like, overpassing earlier in the season and getting, like, great looks, and they were basically, like, toying with defenses. And now they're not really doing that. And... You know, I think some of it is earlier in the season, they kind of set a bar that was totally unrealistic and they would have broken every single record. They had the best offense ever. They had like the highest free throw shooting ever, highest true shooting ever. Just the shot making was outrageous. I think that like one thing that's kind of related to this, honestly, that I don't think a lot of people are talking about because it's out of sight, out of mind is like, Rob Williams is just really important part of the offense in terms yeah. of creating like the tap outs. They like those are huge. Those like forget about like the fact that he's just this monster in the dunker spot or monster on a short roll or a lob threat. Like all that is real. But even just like the the offensive tap outs where you create you get second chance opportunities and you extend the possession, like he's so critical in that area. And they don't have anyone really to replicate that except like Luke Cornett, who's not going to play huge minutes every night. So like Rob, like last year, the best starting five in basketball, Rob was a part of it. Right. And this season that lineup has played 81 minutes. I think that that's like a pretty big deal. when we're talking about like 
what this Celtics team's ceiling is and maybe a cause of their issue. He's not everything, but like if you were to tell me at the beginning of the season, hey, Rob Williams only played, what's he played, like 25 games, twenty, not even 30 games this year? Yeah, 28 what, games. Yeah, like, and the Celtics had the second best record and they had a top five defense and a top five offense, according to Cleaning the Glass. Like, I would say that's a win. And I think just because of how things go and the order that they go, we're kind of, or Celtics fans are kind of looking at it like, uh, time to hit the panic button. But even if you go back to like December, like they lost five of six in a stretch that was pretty worrisome then, and they righted the ship. And if you look at their schedule um, right now going forward, like the rest of this West Coast road trip, no one's really that scary. Like I say that they could drop the next three in a row and then it would be pretty a catastrophe. But like you look at the rest of their schedule, like I don't, a lot of winnable games and um, like when I look at what's left for the regular season, I think March 30th against the Bucks and April 4th, I think it is, or April 5th against the Sixers in Philly and in Milwaukee. Like those are like the two games that actually matter. The two games that I'm really interested in seeing how this team stacks up against the teams that they have to beat if they want to win the championship, which is like all that matters. So like, I guess this is like a really long-winded way of saying, yeah, their offense wasn't clicking last night for 48 minutes against the Houston Rockets, and that's worrisome. But like at the end of the day, when this team is healthy, um, like I don't see any reason why they can't play the same way at the same pace that they did earlier in this season in the playoffs. If yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's fair. And I think too, like when I reference the shot profile, it's like in the postseason when you're in a close game and everybody knows what you're doing from an offensive standpoint, well, then Tatum and Jalen are going to have to take over those games. So it may not even be relevant what the shot profile is right now. It may actually be more relevant that guys like Sam Hauser and Malcolm Brogdon and Grant Williams, when he's actually playing and Al Horford, those guys have the confidence to take those big shots. They That may actually be more impactful when you get to the postseason. But I think the Rob thing's a really good point because, I mean, you look at it, they're basically playing at the highest level in the NBA in terms of their offense when he's on the court, right? I mean, they have like a rating over 121, I believe. And he brings something, you mentioned the offensive rebounding, but it's also the rolling, right? Like he, mm-hmm. he's a lob threat. They don't have that without Robert Williams. I mean, no disrespect to Blake at this point in his career. And Cornette is certainly not a lob threat either. So it brings a different dimension. And I do think from a defensive perspective as well, I mean, you look at one of the issues they've had since Rob's been out lately as the second chance points for the opponent, 18th in the NBA at 14. It was an issue before Rob came back. And one thing that sticks out to me is with Rob last year, once they made that switch to him being sort of in that roamer position, the defense completely changed. And I do wonder, like, I do think just from the naked eye and some of the numbers would back it up, the point of attack defense has not been as good this season as it was last year but I also think you play a lot more confident you take a lot more chances you force more turnovers when you know that Rob's back there so I do think getting Rob back will solve a lot of the issues I just wonder this Pina like we've seen it now so many stops and starts with Rob throughout his career like when he comes back would you put him in the starting lineup or would you bring him off the bench so you're sort of limiting his minutes a little bit in the regular season and then when you get to the postseason figure out if you want to go back to that 
double big because I just think it's a tough decision when you're balancing. This guy's a complete game changer for you. And I thought when they had Rob, okay, this team's definitely winning the championship. I still think they're capable of making a deep run like they did last year. Even I know Rob played a lot in that postseason, but he wasn't the same guy really until the end of that postseason run. So, I mean, how do you handle the Rob situation? Because the last thing that I want to see is Rob comes back for five games and it's like, oh, now it's a thigh mm-hmm. or now it's another hamstring. It's just I I just get really worried about the durability of him. No, I mean, it's a legitimate concern. It's why they traded for Mike Muscala. Oh, it sounds so silly to say it's why they traded for Mike Muscala at the trade deadline. Like they, they have issues about their, their front court depth, not only with Rob Williams, but with Al Horford, really old, a lot of miles on him. Um, either one of them could get hurt in the postseason. And so depth there was a real concern. But like, you know, at the end of the day, this team is probably like a very, very good team without Rob. And in my opinion, an invincible one with him. Like, I don't think like when he's healthy and he's playing 28, 30 minutes a night, like they're basically unbeatable. They just are like they're they have everything going for them with him on the floor. And he gives them this other dimension, as you said, the athleticism above the rim on both ends. I mean, he would have won defensive player of the year last year if he didn't get hurt in March. That's just I don't know if that's a fact, but that's what I strongly believe that Um, he's just a game changing presence. And so I think when it comes to the minutes thing, to answer your question, like now is the time when a lot of teams that know or are preparing for deep playoff runs start to play their starters and guys who are in their rotation more minutes to get their bodies ready for what is going to be a grind and so I don't know if Rob falls into that category. I don't know if the I mean, that's a conversation between the coaching staff, Rob and the medical team. But yeah, getting him like, I don't know if you can just plop him into the playoffs and be like, all right, now we're going you're 28, 30, yeah. 30. Yeah. So when he's ready to play, I would like them to start, you know, ramping him up now as opposed to uh, having it be done in the middle of a playoff series and like you said i don't know like him tweaking something in the middle of a series could just be like it could have disastrous consequences for them so yeah he's he's like invaluable he's i thought coming into the season he was their third best player third most important player maybe he still is when he's healthy so uh yeah he's he just makes them, gives them a totally different look. And I think that they're unbeatable when he's 100%. I'm with you, man. I've compared him multiple times in this podcast to the Rob Gronkowski of the Celtics. It's like when the Patriots had Gronk, they didn't lose. And with Robert Williams, it's like the Celtics don't lose. All right, Pina, before I let you go. So as a Celtics fan, I've been very I don't want to say arrogant, but cocky with the matchup with Philadelphia. But now Embiid's playing at an MVP level again, and he's been better than last year, really. James Harden has been like outstanding lately. Philly's been really incredible over the past couple of months or so. And historically, the reason I've been cocky is this Celtics group has kind of owned that Philly group. Even the game that Jason Tatum didn't play well in that Saturday night game during this funk for the Celtics, they find a way to win with him with the buzzer beaters. So should we be worried about about a potential 2-3 matchup with Philadelphia? No, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've just seen this story before. Like, the Celtics are a terrible matchup 
for the Philadelphia 76ers. I think Joel Embiid is having borderline MVP season. He could win the MVP this year. One of the best offensive seasons in terms of scoring I've ever seen from a seven-footer. Just, he's amazing. Um, at, like, the end of the day, it's just, like, the regular season and the and the playoffs are just so different. And when you can really go at James Harden in a Tyrese Maxey backcourt with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and the other team has no solution for it, like, that really gla- is glaring in a seven-game series. And, like, when you can really, like, hone in on your double teams and your execution defensively against Embiid and, you know, he's not getting to the line as many times, I think, in the playoffs as he does in the regular season, like, that efficiency drops for him and those margins kind of widen a little bit. And so, like, I think Philly's been playing great as well as any team in the league right now, but they're one of a few teams where I'm kind of just, like, wake me up when it's game four of the second round. Like I, that's just kind of where I am with them with a lot of their personnel. And I know that their three point shooting is a lot better than it has been in years past, which is great for them. Uh, Jalen McDaniels has played pretty well and he gives them another look, but you know, PJ Tucker could just be like out for the whole postseason. That wouldn't like surprise me. And he's like a huge part of like, who is their backup five? Like they don't, they just have a lot of questions still. Yeah. So no, I'm not, I don't think that the Celtics should be worried. And even if they don't have home court, I think that they would win that series in six or seven. Like, I just, I just don't think that the Sixers like will ever beat the Celtics so long as Jason Tatum's on the team. Yeah, and I hear that Doc Rivers guy has blown a couple of postseason series throughout his career. Like, that may be a thing as well. Well, I got to tell you, Pina, thanks so much for coming on, man, because I feel like that was therapeutic. I was really down on the Celtics. You made me feel, like, a lot better talking through this. It's the dog days of the season, so hopefully they play a little bit better down the stretch run, and then they turn it on for the postseason. That is Michael Pina from The Ringer, The Ringer NBA podcast. You hear him on Bill's pod as well. Pina, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it, man. All right, great stuff there from Michael Pina. Coming up next, we'll flip to baseball. My old buddy Rob Bradford from WEI will join us. We'll get into what's going on with the Sox down there in Fort Myers. Also get into the new book he has with Joe Kelly. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. 
Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, my old buddy, Bradfoe, Rob Bradford, host of the Baseball Isn't Boring podcast, the Bradfoe Show for Odyssey Sports as well, covers the Red Sox for EI, and he has a new book that he authored with Joe Kelly, A Damn Near Perfect Game, Reclaiming America's Pastime. Bradfoe, first of all, man, congratulations on the book, and how are you, my friend? Good. I lost a bet. I lost a bet to you, one of the many. I Usually I win all the bets I have with you, Brian. Okay. But I lost the bet because I said uh, within nine months. Or how long you've been doing this podcast? This excellent podcast since August, so a little less than nine months. Okay. Okay. So I said by the time we get to spring training, by the time that it is t- that it has come time where I have to get on get on with you once again and promote the book that you knew I was working on, uh, that you would change the name of the podcast. You have not changed the name of your podcast. Um, so it must be good. I must have been wrong. wrong. Uh, and uh, congratulations on all your success and making it to this point where you're interviewing me about uh, this excellent project. Yeah, well, off the pike is catchy, man. So get used to it. All right. So, Rob, obviously, we all love Joe Kelly here. The Flight Club with Tyler Austin, the brawl ensues. And by the way, also, like that was very entertaining. Joe Kelly was great for this team in that 18 postseason run, 13 strikeouts. No walk. So we loved him here. And I know you had a lot in this book about his meeting with Rob Manfred and then, of course, the cheating scandal with the Astros. So give us an idea of what we'll get in this book. Yeah, well, I mean, there's just not a lot of guys in baseball who would who are still playing, who have ever been still playing and active players who is willing to be honest and open. And and as as Joe is, I knew that. I mean, I've covered him long enough to understand that this is a very genuine guy who doesn't give a crap in, the, in the, all the right ways. I mean, he's a great teammate. He's not going to throw anyone under the bus unless he really doesn't like him. Yeah, you know, he's going to call Josh Donaldson a douche because that's how what he thinks he is. And so, <laughs> I mean, th- you know, but that's how it is, right? That He's he's not worried about his brand. Um, he, he loves baseball. And, you know, when we talk, when we start this project, we understood this. We are. We understood that like this is we're just going to be honest and open about all this stuff. And and, you know, you go back to it, it begins with the Carlos Correa pout thing. And, and, you know, he was sticking up for his Dodgers teammates who they felt all felt like they were robbed by the Astros back in that 2020 year. And the Astros had gotten off the hook in, in their eyes. And I think in Joe's eyes, too, where, you know, not being accountable, getting the immunity from from baseball for throwing people like Alex core and AJ Hinch under the bus. And so when they played them, it was like, okay, you know, you're going to pay the price. And I think that's what we start the book with that whole idea. And then he faces Correa. And as he said, he said it, the most powerful emotion isn't being hit in the ribs with a fastball. It's embarrassment. And that's what he did with Correa. You go back to that John boy, YouTube clip, whatever it is. And you know, you see like the how the, the whole thing unfolded, and it was just he was just freezing him with curveballs. And Correa said, "Why don't you throw me a fastball?" And Joe just looked over him and said, "You remind me of you know this AU kid, spoiled AU kid." And you know, so I'm going to give you the pouty face, the pouty face I give that kid, or the, my kids, my wife, whatever it is. And so obviously, next thing you know, he's like a, a mural on the side of a, a barber shop in Los Angeles. But then, you know, you have other instances. We all we know that Joe has more instances than most. One of them, which was a fight with the Red Sox, a Tyler Austin fight, which is one of the better stories of that in the book, I thought, was two weeks after the fight. He's going through Times Square with his uh, just driving through with his agents. And you see Tyler Austin cross the street. 
he's like, let me out. He gets up, tries to get out of the car to fight him. And the agents are scrambling <laughs> to try to lock the door. Um, but that's who Joe is. And, and, you know, I think across the board, you know, this, he's, he's passionate about baseball. He's passionate about, you know, what he feels is wrong and right. He's passionate about that. This should be entertaining. And we've seen that in multiple, multiple ways, the mariachi jacket, the white house, whatever it is, but also like, you know, the, you aren't one of the things I know that what Joe says is his favorite chapter is chapter seven, where I think he becomes the first player that actually sits down and interviews uh, the commissioner. I mean, it's just like a 45 minute conversation and we didn't edit it. Believe me, we didn't edit it because I transcribed it and it was like, you know, just two guys talking. And I think that, you know, it humanizes Manfred a little bit. And like Joe said, he's like, he, he really didn't like him coming in and he liked him going out. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a, in, in this topic of baseball that's going on right now, Brian, a year ago, remember, we all said baseball is going to be dead, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, I don't think that's the case as we sit here. And I think that sort of Joe is the guy to sort of be screaming that from the mountaintops with this book. All right. So that's the book, A Damn Near Perfect Game Reclaiming America's Pastime with Rob and Joe Kelly. You can get it everywhere, Rob. Amazon. I saw it on Amazon. You can get it pretty much everywhere. Oh, my goodness. I mean, if you haven't walked in, Brian, come on. I know where you live. I know how close you live to a Barnes and Noble. If you haven't walked in and run in and immediately bought three copies, like, what are you doing? Come on. It's, (laughs) it's, and like I said, like I said, like there's been, it's getting great reviews and it's getting the message across that we hope. And the other part about it, like I love the somebody tweeted said, this is the best book ever written by an active player. Um, and that's including ball four, which is iconic. You know, Jim Booten, ball four, holy mackerel. Like, and so like that, that was one of the best compliments I, I've seen that we got um, because I'm like, that's what we wanted. Right. These, these things don't come along. These opportunities don't come a whole around a whole lot. We aren't talking about a Hall of Fame player. We're talking about one guy who should represent a lot of what's good in baseball. Just saying, hey, this is my story. I'm the story of the, the kid who quit baseball because I wanted to skateboard and become an undercover narco agent. You know, Brian Barrett has a story. You, you have your baseball story. You know, so everybody has a story. So that's that's what it's all about. All right. So make sure to get out and get the book. And Rob, you were talking about people were worried about the sport. So you were in Arizona, you were in you're in Fort Myers right now as you're talking to us. So I have to imagine like this whole pitch clock thing. I've really enjoyed it. Like I've noticed the difference watching like the spring training games, of course, compared to last year, but even like the WBC going on right now that doesn't have the pitch clock. It seemed like it was way overdue, but you're at these games. Am I overstating it or is the product way better with the pitch clock implemented? Uh, so much, it's so much better. It's so much better. I, and, and it's to the level, Brian, where you're like, how did we ever do this before? Like, what were we doing? And, and, and fortunately we have like real time examples of how that feels because the WBC, Yeah, the Red Sox did, uh, had that exhibition game with Puerto Rico. It was three hours, but it felt like eight hours because the pace <laughs> of it was so bad and so it's it was you know i think that it's one of these things where you know we didn't realize how bad this had become and doing games on the radio 
it's like well, I have you know you're, uh, you sure you aren't able to finish stories that usually you would tell. But the first time I did it, Brian, the first game that I did, I sat down. It was like someone smacked me in the face. It's like, hey, listen, you got to you know step things up a little bit. You got to pay attention. Let's go. These these innings they can last two minutes. So it, it, it's this now. I will say this. There's a lot of things that like are people haven't figured out these subtle things, but it's a good start. All right. So with the WBC going on, we've seen a lot of these top prospects for the Red Sox get into some of these spring training games. Of course, the number one guy, Marcelo Mayer, but Raffaello has been up there. Brian Mata, Brandon Walter actually got clobbered on Monday. But and then you have Miguel Blaze, who had the hit off Manoa. So who's out of that group, Rob? I mean, this is kind of fun to watch because all these guys are up with the WBC going on. But who out of that group, like the young guys, the prospects, so to speak, has jumped out to you? Well, I mean, I think that the, the one that everyone's sort of finally coming around to is Blaze, right? Miguel Blaze. And, and you watch him. You watch his body type. You watch the way he moves. You can see, like, I don't know if he's going to be good, but you can see why they 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 think that he is going to be really, really good. We we say, why do all these other organizations have the one Soto's of the world and you don't? And I'm like, okay, well, that might be, I'm not saying it's going to be Soto, but that that's the type of talk conversation that we're having. So, and, and by the way, the Red Sox did have that guy, right? Mookie Betts. But, you know, it took a little <laughs> bit. Well, he did, right? I mean, he did. Yeah. They did. I mean, I just... So I just talked to um, I just talked to Beatty, the rook, uh, the rookie for the Mets, right? Just talked to him, and I asked him. I love this question. I say, well, "Who would you start uh, if you could start a franchise? Who would you start with?" And he said, "Mookie." And he's like, you know, rattles off why. I'm like, you know what? I mean, this is a major league player saying this. Like, this shows you what type of impact that guy has. But the like Marcelo Meyer, I think, is going to be a really good play. But and same with probably Rafaela, but still, like I think that Blaze like is the type of guy that that's what we're talking about. At least has potential to be. Wow, and I, I hope he taunted Manoa like Manoa taunted last year, Franchi oh. and Dahlback when he struck him out. Like, come on, man! Everybody strikes those oh, guys. Oh, I out, told so. we were we were at the complex yesterday, and and so the the players leave really early because the trip to Dunedin is like over two hours. And, and so the pitching coach, the hit, the coaches stay behind to get stuff done. And then they drive up separate. So Dave Bush was dry, Like he was just leaving. He's like, okay, I'm headed up. I'm like, oh, I heard Manoa's pitching. Don't get any fights up there. Because like it, every time Manoa <laughs> faces the Red Sox, it seems like he's going to get in a fight with somebody. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's nasty. I just like, as a Red Sox fan, I cannot stand it because he's really good and he's really arrogant about what he's good at. So, Hey Rob, obviously like a big kind of sports talky topic, if you will, is Chris Sale not starting on opening day. Quite frankly, from my perspective, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. Like, okay, if they think this is the best avenue to get him back to being the top guy in the rotation, I'm fine with it. I get it. It's opening day. Fans want to see him, but he's probably going to pitch on that Saturday game, which is an afternoon game as well. So I'm completely fine with it. Did you have a problem with them deciding? And Alex Cora said, correct me if I'm wrong, like he decided on this in a month and a half ago that Sale wasn't going to be the opening day started. Did you have an issue with it? Yeah, and Cora did no, no. And Cora did tell him like a long time ago. I talked to Sale yesterday about that, and yeah, and he was appreciative. They told him and wasn't trying to throw 105 miles an hour, so proved that he could pitch an opening day. But I think that this is, you know, this is like a <laughs> this. this I, 
this this conversation is like I I I'm resisting saying some things that I want to say because of of the fine people I work with. Um, but let's just say that this is not a nuanced conversation, right? <laughs> this is this is a very simple conversation. This this is a very simple conversation. Op- as I said, opening day is eyewash. It's eyewash, right? I mean, all you want to know is is the guy going to pitch the first game in the playoffs? That's right. all I want to know, and. So this this idea that it has to be the be all end all, or you get the most, or you got a pitch, and then like, oh, what a failure this is, or you're you're babying babying him because he's not pitching opening day. Well, again, I just, I'm sorry for me. I who cares? Like, I'll give you an example. All right, you know who pitched opening day when Chris Sale's first year with the Red Sox? Not the best pitcher. Not the guy they gave up Yohan Mankata and Michael Kopech and two other guys for. Nope. It was David Price, right? So David Price started the opening day. And like, because why? Because he was already on the team, right? It was, it was like, we don't want to piss off anybody or it's, it's in, in this case, Brian, with the sale thing, it's not like, like we absolutely know what Chris sale is going to be either. Right. Like Corey Kluber could very well be as good as Chris sale. I don't know. Like this is the this is their lot in life. This you, you have so much uncertainty. You don't have a quote unquote opening day pitcher. Sorry, you don't. So to like get all riled up about this idea that oh Chris Sale is going to pitch on day two, like come on. Yeah, well, Rob, I will say this. I mean, come on, man. I- I'm getting really excited for Chris Sale after watching these spring training outings. So don't yeah, say he's going to be good. Yeah, don't say he's going to be similar to Corey Kluber. I want to hope, man. I want to believe this guy is going to be an elite pitcher again. And look, nobody expects him to get back to where he was between, what, 17 and 18. But I just hope he can be maybe 85% of that guy because if you get that type of pitcher, I mean, you got a top end of the rotation guy. So I did want to get to Bayo because he gave us a scare, obviously, early in spring training. I know he threw to live batters the other day. So we'll see when he starts the season. But I mean, we saw him last year, Rob. The ground ball rate is through the roof. The I mean, the launch <laughs> angle, you know me. I love the oh, launch angle. Oh, man, I, I missed you. I miss you, my friend. I miss you. <laughs> 5.3 degree launch angle, Rob. Only three qualified starters were self that. Okay, <laughs> everything's on the ground. The one concern, of course, the walks last year. But the four seamers at 97 is nasty sinkers at 96.3. He's electric. I mean, we saw him work it out with Pedro in the offseason. To you, with this is basically his rookie season because last year he came up, you know, late in the year. What would be a successful season for Bayo in his first opportunity to start with the big league club to begin the year? And I know this year he's going to start, obviously, on the IL, but pretty close to the start of the season here. Yeah, I mean, I think that on surface level, you're talking about, what, 20, 25 starts? That that would be an ultra-successful season. Um, but I think most importantly is him finding, hitting the, being a guy that they can count on in meaningful games in the last couple of months. That's what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like yep. there's going to be a, there's going to be a learn. There's still, as you, you, all your numbers suggest. I mean, there's still, this guy's a work in progress. I will say this, you know, this is, <laughs> this is spring training, right? So when they're undefeated for X amount of games, everyone's like, oh, my God, like this, this is unbelievable. Well, you know, I've seen enough spring trainings to understand, like, the first half of spring training don't mean anything. It's how you finish spring training. But I, I saw Bayo and Whitlock throw their live BPs the other day. And it was, you know, my untrained eye, it was really good. 
It was really good. It was. It's also interesting because they're throwing back to back to sort of see the different types of styles, to see their stuff and everything else like this. But you know, like Bayo stuff just sort of explodes. And so, yeah, I mean, if he can stay healthy, I think he's he can be really, really good and a really important weapon. But but it's going to take some time. Just just get to the spot where you feel like by the second half of the year that you know if you're in it that he can do something. Yeah, and with the Whitlock situation, of course, he's coming back from the hip surgery in the offseason. To me, I have no issue. And I know, Rob, a lot of people mention how great he is, of course, as a reliever. We all know that. That's established. But I have no problem with them trying him out in the rotation. I think, quite frankly, they owe it to themselves. Because last year, that was not a fair assessment of what Garrett Whitlock is going to be as a starter, right? Because he gets the spot start in Toronto because of the situation with Tanner Houck. And unfortunately, Rich Hill's father passed away. But then they kept him in the rotation. They're building him up as a starter. I mean, obviously, the numbers the second time through the order were really bad for Garrett Whitlock, but based on the stuff and based on the mentality of the player, I actually believe that he can be a successful starter. What do you think is the biggest thing for him, like getting into this new role, going into the rotation? What's the biggest step for him? I mean, he's got the three pitches now. He's got the slider. I'm sure he's going to throw that a lot more as a starter than he did in the bullpen last year and when he was, of course, in the bullpen, not as a starter. What do you think is the biggest thing for him, though? Well, number one is to stay healthy. And and yeah. and I agree. I mean, last year... It was just, he was, he, so he was pitching on half a hip. And so like people say, oh, well, what's that mean? He was actually explaining to me the other day, which made a lot of sense. So when you go back in your lineup and you sort of have that like one second where you're sort of over your hip, you know, where you sort of have to like stand up tall that way, like he couldn't even do that. So everything was like, you're going up and then immediately you're falling down. So like that is not, I'm not a pitching coach, but I can tell you that's probably not good. So now that he can do that, that would seem to make a big difference. Um, and they've also, this isn't like you're rolling out the same bullpen because if they were, you need Garrett Whitlock there. Right. But oh, yes, great point. Actually, right. They've actually invested in this bullpen, all the things that we want them to do. Hey, you got to pay for certainty. Well, the one place they kind of did was the bullpen with Kenley Jansen and Chris Martin and, and even trading for Blyer. So you, you got some certainty there or perceived certainty. And that gives you the opportunity to do like, we don't know how this is going to work out. Maybe there'll be problems in the bullpen and everyone be screaming for Whitlock again. I don't know, but right. The way the team is constructed right now, it makes sense. All right. And with Trevor's story, I know that he was taking ground balls. Are you holding out any hope that, and I know he's not throwing, obviously, but and do you have any hope that he returns at some point this season, maybe at the very tail end here? No, I mean, I think he's going to return before that. I oh, do. wow. Yeah, I mean, he's he's like, like, first of all, he's doing like a, he, I was talking to him, he, he, and like I said, well, when are you going to start swinging? He said, well, I can, I can, like he was showing me, like he doesn't, his arm isn't like, like bent. He actually it's he's able to lift with that arm and I come back to it, you know, having that, that procedure that he had done, there are examples of it. We have examples. It's a fairly new procedure, but you know, the, one of the guys, our guy, Rich Hill, right. He had it done and he's like, yeah, you know, four months. Okay. And, and you, then you can have start having the conversation and, and think about this too. Is it Rich Hill had it done? What? 2020. And he's just got an $8 million contract as a 43-year-old pitcher. So the thing's held up. 
So I think that that he and believe me, Trevor Story is out there every day doing baseball stuff, which is I credit to him too. But I I think I think he's going to be back for the you know a good chunk of the second half. I mean that's what I think. Ooh. Um, yeah. So there you go. You're welcome. No, I like it because Sorry, Rob, I, I, mean, I, I think he's he brings an element that this team like he's a dynamic player in terms of we know how good he is running the bases. We know how good he is in the field. And I really do think like with all these guys now we're in the offseason, they emphasized, hey, let's get guys that walk and don't strike out when I'm talking about Yoshida and Turner. Now, obviously, Duvall's a different category. That's a power hitter and a really good defensive outfielder. But I do think story that free swinger, I mean, I would love to get that guy back in the lineup some point because I feel like last year, Rob, and look, I'm not comparing him to Xander Bogarts, obviously. Like, Bogarts is a great member of this organization for a long time, but I feel like he never really got his footing last year, right? I mean, he had the late start, and then he was dealing with an injury, then he's dealing with another injury. He only plays the 94 games. Like, I just feel like he never really got a fair opportunity, and he was dealing with an injury last year, so maybe him just having this procedure, so to speak, we'll get an idea of what the real Trevor story could look like in a Red Sox uniform. And look, maybe he never delivers on what his contract looks like, but I at least want the player to get a fair opportunity because I feel like he didn't last year. Well, I mean, he, he had that run and was in May last year. May oh my June. God. Yeah. When he hit all it the was, home runs, uh, like seven and a nine yeah. games or something. Yeah. 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 So he was, he was really, really, really good. And, and you're right. Like it was all discombobulated, you know, starting off. And he had said at one point, well, he told me in September that like, he was like, he had problems with that elbow in April. Right. And he was like, even wondering heading into May, is this going to be something where I'm not going to be able to shake. And he found a routine where he felt like that he was able to manage it and feel better. And, and that's, I think one of the reasons why he took off. But, uh, you know, but he had so many injuries. He's a good player. Like, this is the thing. Is that, is he a superstar? Maybe not. But he's a really good player. And I think his position should be second base. Now, all of that said, Brian, I like Christian Arroyo. Like, I like, I think that this guy is a really, really underrated player, particularly defensively. I think that people look at Christian Arroyo and they say, oh, that's a bigger guy. And he doesn't look as athletic as maybe Trevor Story. And they're like, oh, he can't be he can't be that good defensively. This guy's an elite defender. He is. But in, in regards to story, like I, I think that when he's in the lineup, that's a difference maker. It's not like a good guy you're gonna hit third, but he he lengthens the lineup better than most. Yeah, certainly. And you're completely right on Arroyo. I mean, you look at him last two years in a Red Sox uniform, one era at second base, and nine defensive runs saved over his last 697 innings over the past few years at second. Story was actually six in 813 and two-thirds. So by some of the metrics, he was actually a better defender than Trevor Story, and we all know that Alex Cora last year said that Story was the best defensive second baseman in all of Major League Baseball. All right, that is my buddy Rob Bradford from WEI. He hosts the Baseball is in Boring podcast, and he hosts the Bradfoe Show on Odyssey Sports as well. He covers the Red Sox for WEI. He's got a new book out with Joe Kelly, a damn near perfect game reclaiming America's pastime. Bradfoe, thank you so much for the time, man, and enjoy your rest of your time there in Fort Myers. Listen, everybody in the entire North Shore Mall is so proud of you. So I'm proud of you. <laughs> Everybody is very, very proud of all your success, Brian. So it was a pleasure to talk with you. All right. Thanks, Brad Foe.
All right, great stuff there from my buddy Rob Bradford. Make sure to go get his book. And great stuff, as always, from Michael Pina on the Celtics. It is time now to get to our greatest Boston bet of the week, thanks to our friends at FanDuel. I've been having a lot of fun with FanDuel, Massachusetts. Finally, we have legal gambling, so make sure you hop on FanDuel. So I got a same-game parlay for the Seas and the Timberwolves coming up on Wednesday night. So I like the Celtics to cover the three and a half. They have got to bounce back after that awful loss to Houston. And in particular, their best player needs to bounce back, right? Jason Tatum was not good in that game against the Rockets, and he missed the layup opportunity late. So Tatum over 30 points. Now, Jalen Brown was really, really good in that game against the Rockets, but I expect him to keep that up. So I'll have him over 25. So Jalen over 25, Tatum over 30, and the C's to cover the three and a half. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172, or email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys on Thursday. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.